0: So today we're talking about the gospel. That's what today is all about. It's the first four verses of 2 Peter chapter one, and it's about the gospel. And I want you guys to know from the onset here that you never outgrow the gospel. I think sometimes people can think that the gospel is like the entrance into Christianity and then you do other stuff, but that's just not reality. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the term gospel, it simply means good news. And it's the good news that Jesus died for your sins so you could be forgiven. It's the good news that he was raised from the dead so that you, could be, that you could live forever. And it's the good news that he sent his Holy Spirit to live within all who believe so that you would actually have the ability to follow him as king. But here's the reality, guys. Um, even if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, we're glad you're here. If you're here and you are, are a follower of Christ, you still need the gospel every day because you know, if you're honest with yourself, that just because you have come to believe in Jesus and trust in him for forgiveness, you're still quite a mess, right? Can we get an amen? So this past week, um, my... Kids were playing on tablets one day, and and it was just one of those days. Now, some of you guys remember the infamous tub kicking incident. If you know the tub kicking incident, raise your hand. So you can. If you don't know about the tub kicking incident, you go to one of the people whose hands are in the air. So um, so Eden just would not put the tablet down, and it was the day when it was it was like the four days of rain, and uh, we had just left prayer right? So I was obviously very spiritual. I was in a very spiritual place. And we were waiting to get into the van, and then we're waiting to get out of the van, and Eden would not put the tablet down. And Gina was somewhere else. She wasn't there to help me with sanity. And I'm just getting soaked as I'm like, Eden, please move. And she wouldn't move. And finally, I grabbed the tablet, and it was like one of those kids safe you know, those things are like made of rubber, indestructible. You know what I'm talking about? And we went inside the house, and I slammed that tablet so hard down on the counter that it bent in half. And then I was like, oh, gosh. So then I, I put the cutting board on top of it, and I'm trying to unbend it. I'm trying to unbend the tablet. I'm like, well, Gina's going to find out. <laughs> She's going to find out. Mallory said to me this morning, I didn't know you could bend a tablet. <laughs> you can, Mallory. Technology's really advanced a lot. The point is this. We need the gospel. We need forgiveness. Because your growth as a believer is really like there's a dirty pond, and then instead of having a source of, do- of dirty water, you get this new source of clean water as God brings your heart to life. But... It takes a long time to dissipate that muddy pond that you've had and to really kind of push all of it away. And you're trapped in a body of death until you're with God in glory. And so, even though you do improve over time, not a day goes by when you're not hungry for His grace and His forgiveness. And that's why the gospel is always relevant. And so, the gospel is our foundation, the gospel is our hope for today. When we bend tablets in half in a fit of rage as our children are crying. And it's our hope for the future because one day we will die and we will stand before the judge. And we won't stand because we have it figured out. We'll stand because Jesus is our conqueror and our victor. And so um, we're going to be in 2 Peter 1 to 4. I'm just going to read these verses and then we're going to break them down. If you have a scripture journal, great. If you didn't get one, they're in the foyer. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. I'm going to slow down. These two verses are some of the thickest verses in the New Testament. All right, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, if you're reading that from a different translation, um, you notice that it probably is worded very differently. But the ESV, which is what we term, typically preach from, keeps it in that in that order for a specific reason. They want you to see each of those phrases. So, verse 1, Simeon Peter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So you notice right off the bat here in the first part of verse 1, you have two names and two titles, Simeon Peter. Now, notice he doesn't write Simon Peter. Simon was his birth name. Peter is the name that Jesus gave him. If you look at Peter's first letter, he introduces himself as Peter. He doesn't call himself Simon Peter, but here, interestingly enough, he calls himself Simeon Peter. So you have the transliteration of the Hebrew name into Greek, Simeon, and then the name that Jesus gave him. And so the question is, why? Well, I think a couple things are going on here. One, Peter was one of the earliest leaders of the early church. He was a Jew by birth. He came to be a follower of Jesus. He was basically the first among equals of the apostles. His name is always listed first in the list of the apostles. We went through that stuff last week. Um, Simeon is who he was born. Peter is who he became. But Peter is also writing here to Gentiles. Gentiles simply means non-Jews. That's the vast majority of everybody in this room is a Gentile. And so Peter is writing to Gentiles. So I think part of the reason that he includes Simeon and Peter is because this is his final letter before he dies. And it's almost like this is the encapsulation of all that Peter is. Because the truth is that all of us are the sum of our parts, right? The good, bad, and the ugly, the things that we've gone through, they all mold us to be who we are today. And so the same thing is true of Peter. He wants them to know that Simeon, Peter, is a complete man, beginning and end with a real history, with real experiences, with real failures. And so in those two names, you have this picture right from the onset of this is the man who I was born, and this is the man who I was reborn right? Simeon, Peter. Also two titles, servant and apostle. And if we're honest, those two titles, they seem to be diametrically opposed, right? A servant or actually more accurately translated slave, a slave and an apostle. So you have the lowest of the low, and then you have apostle, which we think of as the ones who led the early church. See, because both were true of Peter. Peter was a servant of Christ. He was a servant to the church, the body of Christ, a servant to the bride of Christ, often serving the church with pain, with suffering, often doing, going places that he did not want to go, being in situations he did not want to be. And so, yes, you could say, well, he's the apostle. I mean, he's the apostle Peter. And that sounds very glamorous. But the truth is that all of that was compounded with being a slave of Christ. The point is that he didn't have much of a choice in what he was doing because Christ had purchased him with his blood. Peter was a complex man. Second half of verse 1, To those who have obtained, or you could translate that as granted, to those who have granted, been granted or obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, again, this letter, who is it written to? It's written to Gentiles. It's written to Gentiles and non-Jews. Now, the biggest hurdle in the early church, anybody know what the biggest problem in the early church was? It was Jews and Gentiles all of a sudden being together in one place of worship. That the Jews had been taught their entire upbringing that Gentiles were dirty and unclean. They were goyim, right? You don't hang out with them. You don't talk to them. You don't marry them. You don't go near them. Even Gentiles who converted to Judaism had to stay in the outer part of the temple where the Jews worshipped. They couldn't come in because they would always be a Gentile, okay? And then all of a sudden, you had this picture where Jesus didn't just redeem Jews who came to place their faith in him, but he would also allow snake-handling, polygamous, dirty, rotten Gentiles like us, who last week they were doing who knows what, and now all of a sudden, here they are in church eating a bacon sandwich. All things the Jews hated, okay? Okay. And so you had Jews and Gentiles together, which was a big problem. And look what Peter says. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And so what Peter is saying here is that there are no levels of faith. Everybody here, if you are here and you are a a follower of Jesus, you've placed your faith in Jesus, you have equal standing to the apostle Peter. See, we have this cultural lie born in Catholicism. We call it, say, saints, right? St. Saint Teresa, St. Christopher, St. Bartholomew. I don't even know. If, I, if it sounds like I'm, I'm accurate, just give me a thumbs up. St. Mortimer. Okay, that one wasn't accurate. But we have this idea that these people are super, they're like super spiritual. But that's not biblical. In the Bible The word saint refers to anybody who has come to believe in Jesus. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, in the eyes of God, you are a saint. That there's no layers to which faith is more important. That the Gentiles don't have less of a position than the Jews. That there's no levels of of importance in the kingdom of God. There's no superstars. There's no one who should be above another. Every believer has equal access to Jesus, every believer has the Holy Spirit, not like a, like a 10% of the Holy Spirit, equal faith, just as important, just as precious as Peter's. And look what he says. He says, to those who have tamed a faith of equal standing with ours by, in other words, this is how it happened, by how? Hard work. No. By lots of religion. No. By the righteousness of Jesus, of the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the faith that you have, this is important to know, because he says you have been granted or you have obtained, it's the same word that you would say you have obtained an inheritance or you have been granted an inheritance. The faith that you have obtained or been granted, it's really not yours to begin with. Even the faith that you have to believe is a gift from God. Martin Luther said this was alien righteousness, he called it. Alien righteousness because it comes from out there and it comes upon us. It is not of our own. That the faith that we have obtained is because Jesus saw fit to give it to us. The point is this. I would not have chosen God. I would have chosen rebellion. I wouldn't have chosen patience. I would have chosen kicking a hole in my tub, right? I would have chosen breaking the iPad. I would have chosen to run away from God instead of being brought near to him. But if you are in Christ, you will stand victorious before the judge because Jesus' righteousness flows through you. It's been given to you, and now it's in you, and it goes through you. That's the point. This is why our faith is so precious, because we didn't earn it. It's been gifted to us, and it's been gifted to us because Jesus is good and just and righteous. And now we have it. Amen. You can clap, Diane. That's all right. You guys can clap too. That's okay. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, at first glance, if you've been reading the New Testament, this seems to be a very standard introduction or very standard greeting. But knowledge is a key theme in Peter. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Matter of fact, knowledge comes up multiple times. And if you jump to the end a second, Peter, he ends with this same idea of knowledge. Now, this word that he uses for knowledge... Scholars debate what it means, but it's really this knowledge of salvation. It's the fact that they have a true knowledge of who God is, a true knowledge which comes from having that faith that we just talked about. And so Peter says that grace and peace will be multiplied to you because of the knowledge we have of Jesus. This is the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge that we place our faith in, the knowledge that saves our soul, the knowledge of God's promise to us as we grow, the knowledge that is rooted in God's word, the knowledge is what the false teachers lack, according to chapter two. And so the point is, as we grow in the knowledge of who God is as revealed in his word, we know him more richly, we know him more fully, and we grow in grace and in peace. All of that sounds a lot like the abiding sermon series we just finished, right? All right, verses three and four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. If you have a scripture journal, you're going to want to like visually isolate each of those phrases. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, comma, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, comma, by which he, may, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, comma, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, comma, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now what we're going to do is we're going to break down each of those phrases because they are like steps. And then we're going to flip them upside down and we're going to show what Paul or Peter's line of thought here is. So one, God's divine power has given us or has granted to us, that's past tense, what we need to live godly lives, what we need for life and godliness. And so the source here is this divine power, and the goal here is godliness, Okay, so if the outlet on the wall is that's the divine power, then the light bulb is godliness. In other words, if you want to be equipped to live the life that God has for you today, and if you want to grow in godliness, you cannot do it without what? His divine power. You cannot achieve godliness without his divine power. It's that simple. Religion cannot save you. It's the great American lie Just go to church, you'll be fine. Religion can't save you. You need the divine power because you can't get yourself out of this mess. You're the reason you're in this mess, okay? And so you can't do anything about it. You need the divine power externally to change you. You cannot achieve godliness without it. No meditation will do it. No trip to a shrine in the Himalayas. No enlightenment, no mood crystal no subscription and membership to CrossFit, no low-carb diet, no vegan diet, no keto diet, no Whole30 diet, no Daniel diet. I know, it's spiritual. No Mediterranean diet. Nothing is going to get you to where you need to be. You need His divine power. And that's namely the Holy Spirit that has been given to all who believe. But there's good news. If you are in Christ... If you are a born-again follower of Jesus who shares in this same precious faith as the Apostle Peter, look what he says. It has been granted to you. His divine power has granted. In other words, it's already been done. God has done the work already. God has given you, because of his power, all that you need for life and for godliness. So currently, if you are in Christ, you lack nothing that is needed for life and for godliness. Now, the reason that's important is because you probably don't feel that way, do you? But Peter says that it's true. You lack nothing because of his divine power, not because I'm giving you a pep talk, The very power that raised Christ from the dead dwells within you. Peter says it here. Paul says it in Ephesians. Now, even if you don't feel like you have it, you do as a believer. Now, this isn't power to cast lightning bolts out of your fingers. This is the power to conquer sin and become more like Jesus over time. See, but we also can admit that there's a disconnect. So we have the outlet. We know we have the outlet, this divine power. And I know that the light bulb lighting up, that's godliness. But what about the wire that connects these two things? And look what Peter says in the next verse. He says, this is through knowledge. Through knowledge. Specifically, through knowledge of the God who calls us to see and experience his glory and excellence. The power of God flows through knowledge like the conduit that connects the light bulb to the power source. You see, knowledge of God, knowledge of the God who calls, is intrinsically connected to growing more like christ when he talks about growing in godless godliness he means becoming more like jesus over time but this is the point if we flip this in the opposite this is what we need to realize ignorance of the god who calls never results in godliness and so if you're the kind of person who says i'm a believer but i feel no i don't need to read the bible like i see these memes on facebook they're pretty sweet you know and now I like. I was watching some guy doing a TikTok dance spiritually, it was like a spiritual TikTok dance, so I feel like that should be adequate. Now, if these are the things that you're relying on, you're missing the point because the growth happens through the knowledge of the God who calls us. See, when people begin with their thoughts with, Well, I think that God is like. When we're using our personal assumptions, we're really building an image of who God is in my image and then demanding that He cave to that. But that's not what we need. We need the knowledge of the God who has called us, the knowledge of the God who draws us in, as we see in John 6. And as He draws us closer to Himself, we see His glory, we see His excellence. What I want you to realize is this is who he is. He is glorious. He is excellent. He is infinitely worthy of praise at all times, in all circumstances. This is who he is. It's his identity. It never changes, period. And then look how it continues. It says, by which. It says, the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which. And which there is plural. It's referring to... His glory and excellence, by which, referring to glory and excellence, saying so that if we're gonna rework the phrase, it would be because the God who calls is excellent, because the God who calls is glorious, he has made great, remarkable, precious promises. And we see those promises in the scriptures. He promised to restore mankind to friendship with God. He promised to crush the serpent's head. He promised to rescue the righteous from wicked, to make a way out of slavery to sin. He promised to bring about a king, a perfect king who would reign in righteousness. He promised to empower us with his Holy Spirit. He promises to be with you always to the end of the age. He promises to give you power for the mission, to give you peace when you pray, to mature you when you draw near, to give you joy, peace, power, and fruit as you abide. He promises to come back destroy wickedness once for all he promised to defeat sin and death and he did this all on the cross why because he's excellent he's excellent that's the sum of all he is and he's glorious meaning he's worthy of praise but he also did this so that we can partake of his divine nature Now, that doesn't mean that you become part God like a Marvel movie. What it means is that as you grow, as you mature, you are sanctified and you become more like Jesus. You begin to look like him, smell like him, act like him. These promises are why and how we partake in divine nature. In other words, God made the promise, God's going to fulfill the promise, and you get to be the beneficiary of it. He makes this promise to... And make us born again to fill us with his spirit, the spirit of power, the Holy Spirit, the true catalyst of divine nature and growth. The result of all this is that instead of having the human nature we were born with, Simeon, we have the divine nature as a son of God, Peter. And then he begins the final phrase there with a participle, having escaped or after escaping after escaping the corruption produced by evil. You see, Peter says that God did this. In other words, God, he gave divine power uh, because he called us. He's excellent and he's wonderful and he made these promises so that we could partake of the divine nature and we do this after escaping corruption. See, the way we partake If you think about desire and eating, enjoying, the way we partake the promises of God, according to Peter, is by escaping corruption. That we cannot partake of his divine nature while we're still corrupted by sin. So we need to be removed from that trajectory so God can place us on another trajectory. Before you can have his divine nature, you need to be rescued from corruption. Before you can have his power for life, you need to be rescued from corruption. Before being born again, your desire was for sin. You felt no remorse, no guilt within reason. Built upon your rebirth, your desires change. You've probably seen that in yourself if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, that you crave different things than you did. It's because God placed you on another trajectory, That you're no longer craving the desires of sin that cause corruption, but now you're craving something new because his power has been granted to you and it's working something in you. So, Peter says all of this quite backwards. And that's probably why some of you are currently confused. So, I'm going to rework it and put it in logical order. It's a dense section of scripture. This is the gospel. Now, if we look at this whole thing in reverse order, this is what it looks like. You ready? One, God is glorious and he's excellent. And he created a very good creation. Two, but the world and everything in it became corrupted because of sinful desire when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Three, but God cannot cease to be himself. He is glorious and he is excellent. And as such, he decided that he would not leave man or the world in its corrupted state. Instead, for he gave great, precious promises to restore that which was lost to reconcile man to God, to remove the curse, and to crush the deceiver of old, the devil. Five, so Jesus came in fulfillment of these promises, full of righteousness, obeying his heavenly father perfectly, humbling himself for love and dying on a cross. He died to defeat sin. He rose three days later to defeat death. And so, He grants faith that we might believe, and in believing, be rescued and have eternal life. In believing, escape the world and all of its corruption. And now, for the first time since the garden, we can actually share, taste, enjoy His divine nature. He has confirmed this by sending his Holy Spirit to live within all who are born again, and he will form them in Christ likeness and change them from the inside out. And so the good news, the gospel is this: He did it. Not you. He worked it out. Not you. He made the promise. He did the work. He granted the faith. He is the God who calls. He gives the divine nature that you partake of. He grants the power. And so we can say, like Paul in Ephesians 2, you are the product of his work. You see, religion says you got to try harder. You got to cut out that sin crap. You got to stop doing this. You got to stop doing that. You better go to church. You better give. You better, you better, you better try a little harder. But the gospel says God did it. Jesus did it. He accomplished it. And what we do is believe in the great promises of God, and belief is counted to us as righteousness. And so if you're going to summarize this whole thing in a sentence, I think it's one sentence, because God is glorious, He has made a great and precious promise to restore all things, rescuing us from the corruption caused by sin, and now allowing us to become partakers of his divine nature and power. That's what this passage is all about. That's the gospel. And so what do you do? How do you respond to a gospel like that? How do you respond to the good news that you were dead in your sins, following your own lust-filled fleshly desires, walking according to the pattern of this world, destined for wrath, but God made you alive in Christ, seated you in the heavenlies, and is going to shower his kindness on you for all of eternity. When you hear that gospel... As we see in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, you have response, you have two types of responses. You can either believe and receive it, or you can reject it. That's the only type of response we can have. Now, for those of you who are here, I want you to know that I remember when I was a freshman in high school and someone first told me about the gospel, and I said, All right, I agree with this. But I don't think it clicked in my heart. It was all up here. I just knew it was true. And then four years later, something switched in my heart, and it was like God was drawing my heart. I don't know how else to describe it. And you probably only know what I'm talking about if you experienced it, that it's like God put a hook in my heart, and it's like I had no choice. I was in. I had no choice. You're coming with me. If God's pulling you like that, respond to him. So during the last song, some of the elders, elders' wives, are going to be up front. If you need to pray, if you need to pray because you don't know if you've ever surrendered to Jesus, or if you need to pray because the truth is you did surrender to Jesus, but you feel like you have been wayward, or if you just need to have someone pray with you for any reason, I would encourage you to make your way forward during the final song and uh, and to find someone to pray with you, all right? And so at worship, I'm going to ask you guys to come back up, and I'm going to pray for us. Father God, um, Lord, you have done a great thing. With your power and might, your glory and excellence, God, you have done more than we could ask or imagine. God, if if we were coming up with a plan of salvation, it probably would involved trying really hard and being awesome but that wasn't your plan your plan was to do it for us you made the promise you fulfilled the promise lord we thank you that you are glorious and excellent and because you're glorious and excellent you make great promises and when you make a promise you make sure to carry it out i thank you that you have promised that to all who receive to all who are born again we partake of the divine nature we begin a new trajectory not a trajectory that is corrupted by sinful desire, but we are able to, to partake of this remarkable promise of the Holy Spirit, Lord, and we can be changed. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who needs that prayer, who needs to turn their life to Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them the way that you drew so many of us. In your name we pray. Amen.